just go to any war memorial and look at how many gravestones there are and ask yourself who is who is under the ground there it's going to be men and boys or like go to ask yourself what skeletons are inside the great wall of china and they're going to be immigrant chinese men uh, uh who built the railroads across america that would be men how many people died it would be men and like even just right now the way we talk about issues in a gendered way is almost always centered around women even issues that disproportionately don't impact women as much as men Welcome to another episode of the Art of Success podcast and today's guest is George from the Tin Men. With a mission to broaden our horizons on the male experience, George fearlessly dives into uncomfortable conversations and unearths the raw truths often left unspoken. Through his platform, the Tin Men, he sheds light on the lesser explored aspects of gender equality, focusing on men's health and the often overlooked side of the equation. What I particularly appreciate about George's opinions are his nuanced approach with the amount of clear forethought. We're going to cover some topics like what what you don't know about male suicide, why therapy for men doesn't always work, the gender pay gap, why it's so uncomfortable to have this kind of conversations and the education crisis that boys find themselves in. So enjoy. Starting, or when I was planning this conversation, I was aware of the fact that I was kind of walking on eggshells. I felt like I was on treacherous ground and I felt like I was kind of in danger of, I don't know what, um, but it felt sketchy. Like, why do you think that is? Ah, I mean, there's a lot of different issues. I mean, I agree. I totally mirror your feelings. I mean, I've, I've lost friends. I've had family members walk out the room, like in protest. Uh, You get the classic angry DMs all the time. I just think people... Lots of reasons. People associate uh, men's rights with things such as like the alt-right, white supremacy, being a Nazi. That's the sort of area men's rights advocacy is placed alongside. I remember remember sitting with a bunch of friends years ago and they were talking about like uh, Brexiteers and Tories, which I don't, I'm not a Brexiteer or a Tory. And everyone was saying how much they hate them. And then one woman came in, worst of all, men's rights activists. And I did my normal thing. Well, I was like, men's rights activists, couture, couture, and just spit on the floor. Gross. Oh, I can't believe it. What do they want? Human rights. Gross. And she was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, yeah, human rights. I hate human rights. And uh, obviously being sarcastic. But I don't honestly know. There's been an extremely effective smear campaign against men's human rights uh, to the point where I, you can't even call yourself an MRA without being sneered at. Uh <sighs> So there's been a massive standard campaign. People have bought into this idea that men are ubiquitously privileged in every single area in the world. Like every single area, every single place, in all all types and industries, men are advantage, ubiquitous advantage. And it's like there are certainly advantages to being a man, uh, but there are also disadvantages too. But people aren't willing to sort of see it with that sort of nuance. And we've, we've bought into this very blanket statement of male privilege. So any anyone who wants to advocate for male privilege, it's sort of... It's seen as, again, in line with uh, White Lives Matter. I always get told, like, you sound like a White Lives Matter. And I'm like, mm, not really, because being white is pretty much is an advantage in more or less every single way you could think of. But being a man isn't. And, like, being white isn't the same as being a man. And being black isn't the same as being a woman. And yet we seem to think it is when it when it clearly isn't. And it's not the same now, and it certainly wasn't the same historically. So people seem to think that 
talking about men and boys in a in a positive light is comparable to being a white supremacist so i guess that's why you feel like you're walking on eggshells <laughs> when in fact when in fact yeah. it isn't like even issues that overwhelmingly in fact impact men such as suicide people will even find that difficult to talk about i remember when i was talking about i was working with a male suicide charity at the very beginning told my sister about this is a male suicide charity really good um and she was like why does it have to be men though why does it have to can't this be suicide and i was like it's men because like three quarters to four fifths of suicides are men that's why and there's nothing more complicated than that but i haven't got an answer to your question if i if i, I would love one that's like a million dollar question i think i feel like there is a biological part of us that just care less about men especially their safety or less about men than we do about women i feel like that sort of disparity has been exploited by some people in the political space to basically deny what's happening to men completely and deprive men and boys of compassion and sort of awareness and advocacy but a lot do you of think, people do you on, think this is something that's always been around or is it new or is it something that's been exaggerated in well, recent times or well, what what male disposability are we talking about in terms of yeah uh, no, male disposability. I mean, the whole world is built upon male disposability. That male disposability meaning um, how men are sort of seen as more more disposable, their lives not not worth saving in the same as a women. I guess in the literal sense, it's the women and children first. Like the, the boat hits the iceberg, women and children first. The men can go fuck themselves. And I feel like that's been around for a long, long time. Like just look, just go to any war memorial and look at how many gravestones there are and ask yourself who is who is under the ground there it's going to be men and boys or like go to ask yourself what skeletons are inside the great wall of china and they're going to be immigrant chinese men uh who built the railroads across america that would be men how many people died it would be men and like even just right now the way we talk about issues in a gendered way is almost always centered around women even issues that disproportionately don't impact women as much as men I did a, did a we had a conversation on line yesterday about violence against women, Vogue, and I was asking like if the issue is violent crime, statistically men and boys are the primary victim of pretty much every single violent crime apart from sexual violence. So why, if men and boys are the primary victim of violent crime, are they the ones that are secondary? Why is it centered on the people? Um, why is it centered on the people least at risk? And like the most at risk of violent crime, and I know this very well being a Londoner, young black boys living in the city, working class families, often single parent households. That's the that's the biggest at risk group of violent crime. And yet boys and men are almost never mentioned in anti-violence campaigning. So the idea of male disposability has been around for a long time and it's still with us today. Um, I can obviously give you more examples about how we erase men and boys from the conversation, but as a Londoner, let's loop around yeah. that to that because like on. one thing i wanted to explore is like when did it when did it become kind of nebulous or when did the area between the far right and um men's rights and boys rights become this kind of nebulous mess like when did that happen was there a crossover well in terms of what men men and boys advocacy being conflated with the far right yeah when did, when did that happen? I, uh, all the time like it's it's been seen, men and boys advocacy has been seen as a dirty word for at least 50 years. I, I did a podcast with someone called Erin Pitsy, who she is, in my opinion, a national treasure. Erin Pitsy um, became famous 
around the world 50 years ago when she opened the first refuge in the world for women and girls. The first domestic abuse refuge was opened by someone called Erin Pitsy. And her uh, her learnings were that domestic violence isn't a gendered issue. It's a, uh, it's a sort of a cycle of violence that comes from childhood and families and it's generational. And men are at risk too. Men are at risk of violence just like women are. Uh, so she she decided to, as well as advocate for women's safety, also to advocate for men and to open a refuge for men and boys. And that's where she became a plentiful national hero to a national disgrace. And she got picketed, harassed, got like death threats, bomb threats, like a huge amount of backlash against her. She was no longer seen as this uh, hero for women. And she, she became like basically a black mark of, of women's rights. And so that was 1975. So for at least since then, just talking about men and boys in any sort of compassionate way is kind of gross to a lot of people. So gross that you're willing to threaten someone who has saved thousands of women and girls' lives. So when when men when did Emma being a men's rights activist, of which I don't consider myself, when did that become conflated and mixed in with being basically a piece of shit? At least fifty years ago, potentially more. Like I've always, I've always been interested into where this anti-male sort of mindset comes from and I've yet to find the source. And I'm sure like all things, there's a multitude of sources across a, a, a wide variety of time, but I'm afraid. So what has been the, what have, what have been the knock on effects of that? Like obviously like it's, well, I, I think you've got so many facts, so many points and like kind of observations that you can make. Like, what have been the knock-on effects of that fifty-year-plus journey? The knock-on effects of how what what it's like to be to talking about men and boys in this space. Uh, the knock-on effects of men and boys' rights being kind of um... well, specifically in the Erin Pitsy space. So she was obviously a, ma- a huge campaigner against domestic violence. Opened the first refuge, wrote the first book, took domestic violence out from behind closed doors and made it a societal criminal matter. Uh, the impact of her being ostracized for talking about men and boys is the fact that nothing has changed. And that's, that's a direct quote from her. And I, I actually would consider myself a friend. And she said, nothing has changed. We still don't support men who are being abused. We still don't give them shelter. We don't really look at them in any sort of compassion. The way we see domestic violence is seen as something that men do to women as an act of patriarchal control. And nothing has really changed. The people that took over her charity are still there today. And they, they're now the biggest domestic violence organization in the world. And uh, they still run under this exact same philosophy of it's a gendered issue. Men and boys aren't really impacted and men and boys aren't deserving of help. So specifically in domestic violence, nothing has changed since Erin Pitsy's time. And I would say not much has changed elsewhere either. It's kind of a dour, dour space to be in. It's kind of quite a pessimistic space. And, uh, it's so how are men affected currently in terms of domestic violence? Well, in the, in the UK, there's 2.9 million men who are, have been abused in their lifetime. I think it's 5.9 million women. So 3 million and 6 million. So two, two to one, basically one in three victims of abuse in the UK is a man. There's arguments that it's higher than that because the way we collect data is based on police reports and because police uh, men are less likely to report to the police. They're less likely to capture that data. But even going by the conservative estimate of 2.9 million men, it's a huge issue considering there is no support for those men. Not, not, there's, a, there's a handful of spaces in refugees for men in the, in the UK and nothing else. Uh, and the reason why I find it interesting is that domestic violence is obviously a very, especially domestic violence against men, it's a very difficult to talk about subject, very politically unpopular. 
that's where the death threats come. And the annoying thing is that experiences of domestic abuse and violence are a very central cause of male suicide. I think it's 11% of men who are in abusive relationships attempt suicide. So if you look at 2.9 million men and consider maybe perhaps 11% of them are going to attempt suicide, you can see how it's a massive, massive issue. And it's leaving a lot of men vulnerable, not only to the abuse itself, but to the indirect consequences of that abuse. And it's frustrating because it exposes a real double standard within male suicide advocacy. A lot of people want to talk about male suicide, including myself, because it's an important issue, and rightly so. Like 5,000 men lose their lives to suicide every year in the UK. But no one wants to talk about male victims of abuse, even though experiences of abuse are a massive cause of suicide and suicide attempts. So I, I always encourage people to do the dirty work. Don't just talk about male suicide. Certainly do that. It's useful. But ask yourself, what is shaping abusive um uh, sort of suicidality in men and it's not just domestic violence it's lots of different things but what causes being what did the dirty dirty what are the other very like un- yeah what are the other dirty words in this conversation <laughs> like where's the the <laughs> i'm sure there's many All the um, things, but like yeah. what are the things that are frowned upon why if, if i wanted to get us cancelled asap what would i talk about <laughs> yeah 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 this uh, is a, an objective to cancel sexual violence talk about. sexual violence against men uh, in the uk it's um legally impossible for a woman to rape a man that's still a, a, a matter of law so in the eyes of the law there is nothing a woman can do to a man in the uk that would ever constitute as rape to have to, to be a rapist legally speaking and academically you have to have a penis so cis women can't do it uh that's pretty controversial um another one is um false allegations are obviously very difficult to talk about i try not to talk about it i'm very excited to watch the johnny depp amber heard documentary on netflix today coming out today and that that raised up the profile of false allegations and the damage it can do even when someone's found to be innocent in court johnny depp's reputation is still destroyed in the court of public opinion um that's controversial <laughs> what, what else do you want uh Paternity fraud, very controversial. Uh, paternity fraud is where a man is basically raising a child he thinks is his but isn't. And it's estimated about one in 25 men are in that position in America. So one in, sorry, one in 25 fathers are raising a child in America they think is theirs but isn't. That's controversial. And a lot of the time, even when, even if that man finds out the child isn't his, he still has to keep paying child support. So he's now paying child support for another man's child. That's controversial. Um, and then obviously just the basic stuff like men, lower life expectancy in every single country in the world, higher mortality rates in every single age group in the UK, leading in about 11 of the top 15 causes of death in America. Really, like, basically, there's a uh, Professor Randolph Neese, who is the founder of evolutionary biology, I believe. He said, being a man is the biggest predictor of early death now being a man just that is the biggest risk factor forget about obesity forget about smoking forget about being old forget about any just being a man now and he said if we can make male and female mortality rates the same we do we do more good than curing cancer and that is controversial i mean everything is controversial showing any any hint of compassion for men is in some way to a lot of people controversial and it needn't be and it's important it's important to remind people that this isn't a matter of either or. Everything people believe and support for women's rights, I believe too. I consider myself left-wing. I consider myself progressive and pro-choice and the rest of it. I believe all that, but I'm, I'm adding these, these opinions. I'm adding to the conversation. I'm not saying 
either or men or women i'm saying it is it is still about women but can we please add men i'm not trying to wave away like hold that for i'm not trying to wave away women who are being abused i'm saying they exist and they deserve support but also there are 2.9 million men as well so it is controversial in the ways i described but it really needn't be because we're just basically expanding the same compassion and and ideas to both men and women and just being consistent Mm. really it stuns me that compassion is something that can get you in trouble yes yeah and it's just the word man if you if i Mm. take the same stat when i said earlier one in three men are one in three victims of domestic abuse and they don't get any support anywhere in the uk if i just take the word man out of that and if i just said one in three victims of domestic violence in the uk are barred from refuges people are outraged and rightly so but it's only when you say that one in three is men that people are less outraged and actually annoyed are you trying to catch them out if i were to say there is a group of people that are behind at every single stage of education at every single age group in virtually every single western country people would want to know who that group is and if i said that group is boys which it is people are really confused really confused and pissed off they feel they're caught in a sense of cognitive dissonance where you sort of trick them into being compassionate by saying that boys are behind at every single stage of education in every single Western country, but you're taking out the stigma, stigmatizing word boys. And uh, I don't get it. It's so much of this, just the kind of the sunk cost of having the kind of narrativize the world to go okay this is the narrative this is the simple way to to think about it and it's very clear what is right and wrong for me to believe and do and say in this world and then as soon as you have that cognitive dissonance it is uncomfortable is Mm. it like undermining to the individual it's embarrassing it's embarrassing especially when people badge themselves so ardently and explicitly with their political opinions and like people will like quite literally will buy the t-shirt. Like they'll buy, this is what a feminist looks like or smash the patriarchy, X, Y, Z. And people are publicly badging themselves of their political opinions, not just in real life, but on social media, especially. And if a piece of information comes along in a way that I present it, that maybe challenges that point of view, it's not just a challenge to the idea. It's a challenge to the person themselves and their, and their identity and they sort of experience an identity crisis, like an existential crisis of not knowing, quite knowing who they are. Their, their identity has been taken away or been threatened. And some some people are willing to go through that and they come out actually quite grateful for having had their mind changed or sort of twist a little bit. And they message me too, but some people can't can't go through that and they can't grab the nettle and it's too much and it's too much of a threat and they're, they're just a bit too thin-skinned and they're the ones that get all outraged and start using silly words um but yeah. the problem is that, that crave craving for certainty dude is a it's a real fucker yeah yeah and this is what i want to believe that's what i think i, I was thinking like, I, the issue is absolutism like people seem seem to think that there is an absolute answer to every single question and it's a one word answer simple simple hashtagable answers to really extraordinarily complex problems mm. and the absolutist thinking is what's the problem and that happens not just within the feminist movement, but within the men's rights movement as well. I see the exact same dramatic worldviews from both sides. Like I don't, like I am certain. I I have plenty of criticism for the men's rights movement. I think it's very, it's interestingly how similar it is to the feminist movement that they claim to hate. And um, 
the issue is nine. What's the criticism you get from the the men's the men's side? Um, ah, of this equation? I get called a feminist sympathizer and an incel for what? <laughs> no, if you're trying to get me to give uh, reason and rationale to these crazy people online, then I'm, I don't think that's that's something I can provide. But a lot of the time, I people think I cater to feminist thinking too much. But then I also get called an anti-feminist incel. So I don't really know. Everyone seems to have their own opinion. But the fact that I'm getting attacked by both sides is I take that more as a compliment than anything. Yeah. Like Maggie Thatcher, who I'm not in the, not really a big fan of at all, but I do like the quote. She said, if you walk down the middle of the road, you get hit by both sides. And that's, that's me. I tried to walk down the middle, the, the moderate sort of mm-hmm. center left leaning opinion. And you just get mashed up by everyone. But um, the, the criticisms are always diff- different. A lot of people, the big issue I find is a lot of people seeing the word feminism and the word women as being the same thing. So if I ever scrutinize feminism, then people see that as an attack against women, but they're not, it's not, it's not even a little bit like feminism is a distinct political movement and, uh, women as a group of people Like any political movement is deserving of scrutiny. But women as a group are not deserving of scrutiny. It's a huge, diverse, broad church of people. Um, And that's, I think, at the center of why I get criticism, because people mix the two up. A lot of people in the men's rights movement want to criticize women when really they're talking about feminism. And a lot of people on the left in the feminist movement think I'm attacking women because I talk about feminism. And I feel like we just need to draw a big, thick line between women and feminism. And uh, mm. I think that will help diffuse a lot of the outrage I, I often get from both sides. You've been speaking about the criticism and obviously like part of that criticism is the personal cost of saying, of having having a nuanced opinion to, mm. to put it one way. But like there must have been a tipping point where you went, all right, fuck it. I'm going to say something about this. I'm going to, um, I'm going to make my view on this more public. Um, mm. What, what was happening around that time? Like what kind of led you to that point where it's going to, I'm going to make a, a public opinion of this. I guess there are lots of, lots of tipping points. As I, I get, like I mentioned, I live in London and a lot of the people I hang out with are self-described progressive liberals. And I would argue they're not very liberal and they're not very progressive, but I, I would be in these spaces and I would just hear things that just did not make sense. I was friends with someone who was a part of a large feminist organization as well against violence against women, as we've talked about. And then I'd be like, but why? Like I'd go away and I'd bring back statistics and be like 80% of homicide victims are men. Like, are they, should they not be included in the conversation? Like why are we, if four and five murder victims are men, surely the issue is violent crime, not violence against women or violence against women and violence against men, whatever you want. But men need to be part of that conversation too. And men and boys' issues needs to be seen in a way that is more than just encouraging men to cry and boys to talk. And that's all it seems to be. And I was like, there's, there's a lot more to this area than is being discussed. I feel like it's being downplayed, watered, watered down a lot. And I only started my page because I wanted to have essentially a library of reliable facts and information, such as 81% of homicide victims worldwide are men, according to the UN. I just wanted that as a little square on my phone on an Instagram page, a private Instagram page for my own benefit. And I would have it beneath a table in a very literal sense. And then people just started following me. I would, and also people just said, go make your own page. I would be engaging in the comment sections of other people 
and they'd be like, this isn't about you. This isn't about men. If you want to start a space for men and boys, go do it. Go, you go do that. And I was like, all right, I can, I can do that. And I will do that. And I wanted it to be the, the, well, the best of its kind, if possible. I wanted to make it as good as, as good as it can be. I, there were so few places to talk about these issues. I wanted one of the few that existed to be really good. And that is the Tin Men, I hope. So I did it because I yeah. saw a gap in the market. I was told to do it. And I just think like there were certain points in in time where I was just like, this isn't right. And I just, I couldn't believe it. Like over, over lockdown, for example, one of his points is over lockdown. I worked closely with NHS to help advise them on how to support and protect at-risk groups to COVID-19. So the two groups I was working with were black communities and South Asian populations, which are, which are at-risk groups, but so are men. And from my own research for the Tin Men, I was like, I know, I know the male sex is vulnerable. I think it's three times more vulnerable to infectious diseases. And there was no mention of them whatsoever in any of the targeted care for COVID-19 that I was, I was leading. And I could see it in the research, even the research has been given by the client. I was like, it says, I was like, the male sex is a vulnerable. I was like, why are we not protecting all vulnerable groups? I'm sorry if you have a hard time hearing men as a vulnerable group, but the stats are clear. Like men, like male deaths from COVID-19 are 1.6 times higher than women's. Like not, it's not a, a marginal change and stuff like that. I was just like, this doesn't make sense. The stats are there. Why are people How's that wanting to go with what's popular over what is correct? Like I get it. Saying men are vulnerable in any capacity is very unpopular, but it doesn't mean it's wrong and it's not wrong. So that was a case. Again, I saw George Floyd, when George Floyd was killed, police brutality has always been an issue I talk about because it's an issue that overwhelmingly impacts men. Like 95, 96% of Americans killed by police are men. If you were to line up all the black Americans killed by police in 2020, including George Floyd, more than 99% of those men, of those black people are black men. And I just don't understand why gender was never made part of that debate. Like it's a racial, police fatality is a racial issue for sure. So too is it a gender issue, but no one talked about the gender side of it. Just a quick favor to ask my friends, if you could head to wherever you listen to this podcast and leave a very kind review, that will not only help my ego virtually explode, but it will help people just like you find the podcast too, and hopefully help me to their next level. And then I remember a year, a year after that, Sarah Everard was killed, which is, a, is an awful tragedy. And then the same people that were advocating against police brutality were jumping on the bandwagon, talking about male violence, how dangerous men are, how scary it is to be a woman at nighttime and how men are inherently violent. Uh, it's never, and then I was just like, you're just creating the exact cultural panic that fed into the killing of George Floyd, where we see black men as inherently dangerous. And if, if a police officer feels that they need to, they kills him dead. And I was like, you're creating, you're feeding into the exact culture of seeing men as inherently dangerous that causes police brutality. And it's the same people saying, saying both things of it. It's just a year later. And I just thought there was a big gap in the market for some original thinking. And I had some spare time because of COVID. Cause obviously I'm a filmmaker. There wasn't much going on. And, uh, there's so many, there's so many points of hypocrisy that spurred me on. I'm not short of motivations, put it that way. Yeah. When you were, um, when you were speaking to the NHS and when you're saying, 
like these are the stats around yeah. men's susceptibility to infections diseases mm. like what was that what how was that met like what was the repose to that uh it's always apathy it's always apathy you you won't get outrage because it's in a professional space and they are the nhs but apathy it's always apathy that's the best <laughs> you can hope for if it's not outrage it's apathy and that's what i got they don't they don't care they don't know but that just not- means that they're not listening yeah but the fact is, men are, I think it's like, men are three times more likely to go to intensive care if they get COVID-19. And that is crazy. That is significantly higher than any other at-risk group that I know of. And yet, nothing was said and done. And that is a, that is an at-risk, that is a biological vulnerability. That isn't down to sort of men's behavior necessarily. It's biological because men have testosterone, which is has a dampening effect on the immune system. Mm-hmm. And they also have an XY chromosome, which does the same thing, it leaves men more vulnerable to infectious diseases. That was true, that's always been true. It's true for COVID-19, it's true today. Very few people know that. And a part of it's because people that did know didn't say anything. And that one of those people was me. I was on that campaign and there was no funding to talk about men as an at-risk mm-hmm. group uh, in really any capacity that I know of. All the charities I know that work with vulnerable men especially mental health, they are working on shoestring budgets. Like the funding that goes to men's, men who are vulnerable to domestic violence is pretty much zero. Maybe 1% of funding goes to male domestic abuse charities, but almost all of it goes to women. And um, mm. I don't know, uh, there's, just, there's just a sense of apathy where people don't want to talk about it, don't want to hear about it, and they find it personally offensive. So one of the things you spoke about there, you touched on Sarah Everard and mm. the fallout from that. And linked to that was one of the, the posts on your page. And it was like, what are the things that women will never understand about being men from a men perspective mm. um, or from a male perspective? And one of the things that I was just like, I almost like <laughs> out loud. And yes, it's that. It's that. It's like walking along the street and having to like cough, scrape your shoes, <laughs> make noise to like signal yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not a threat and no. like and that's just something that just like I don't think it gets that much attention yeah no I mean this is a very difficult this is a controversial thing but I mean I want to start by saying that every everyone man or woman has every right to look after their personal safety and be mindful of what makes them comfortable and if there's anything we can do as a society if that means crossing the street or you know throwing a little cough to make women and men feel more safe that is absolutely something we should do and, and be mindful of. Mm. But there's a difference between those basic common sense, common decency decisions, and then what is also happening, which is just a massive creation, like a massive cultural panic around men. Like the idea that just seeing a man is dangerous. Like mm-hmm. I saw one, it was like, oh, well, you say not all men, but think about this, that if I take one bullet, put it into a revolver and spin the barrel and point it at you, you're not going to say not all bullets. And it's just like the chance of meeting a man is not a one in six, one in six chance of death. Like, come on. Like that is not advocacy by any means. And you get, you see these posts about men being rabid dogs or ticks or meeting a man is like eating from a bowl full of sweets and 99% of the sweets are great. One of them's covered in shit. And it's like, I don't really think that's very helpful. I don't think that makes men feel pretty good. I don't think it makes women feel safe either. It creates a divide. Uh, it doesn't even solve the problem. It doesn't actually solve the problem of crime. There aren't. There's no one on Instagram who's an actual threat to women reading that and being like, oh, oh I hadn't thought of that. Oh, best, 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 yeah. best retire my career being a violent criminal. Um, so, 
I've actually forgotten any questions now. I've rambled too long. What, what, where where no. do we start with this one? <laughs> it, it was yeah, it was, it was me making a point and not ask, asking oh. an actual question, which is yeah, my great. style of podcast. Well, <laughs> so I, I just ramble. So to, to carry to carry on me making a point and then just expecting you to carry on the conversation oh. without me contributing to it. Um, <laughs> one of the things that really grabbed me emotionally when you're talking to Chris Williamson, which is what inspired me to reach out to you, was the the idea of fathers giving up their child and what that does to an individual. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I know I've talked about it in terms of my own personal experience of my own family. Both my parents are six, very successful professionals, um, both work in academia. So I don't want to give the idea that my mum is some sort of handmaiden. Certainly isn't. I'd say she's, she's like the matriarch of the family. But um, when my sister and I were born, I know she spent time off to raise us. And she basically, her sacrifice was career. For those three years, she didn't work, worked part-time. And like, that's going to have an impact on her pay, on her pay, her salary, uh, her career, of course. And that's where the pay gap comes from. And we can come back to that. But my mum absolutely made sacrifices for me and my sister. And my sister would often remind me of that. She's like, you didn't realize how much mum sacrificed. And I'm like, I don't, because I was a baby. But I know she did a lot. But you don't consider what our dad sacrificed. And then what our dad sacrificed was, op- was the opposite, where he just stayed at work. He had no choice either. If he had said, ah, I ain't going to go to work today, and telling her that is not- <laughs> my mum would not allow him to not go to work. He had to go to work. And as a, as a sacrifice of going to work, traveling the world often for like weeks at a time doing conferences, he didn't get to see his family. So his sacrifice was the opposite, where he spent all the time at work, no time with his family. And the gap that he experienced was a gap of like connection between his family and him. And also, just especially now he's retired, I think he's experiencing a lot more loneliness than my mum because my mum made a lot of friends through raising her children at like play groups and school, stuff like that, uh, just for the women in the village. And they're still friends to this day. And now they both retired. She's got lots of friends from the mothers she met. My dad's got very few friends and he's still paying the price of that sacrifice now. And I don't think we ever really give mums the credit either, but we don't give dads the credit for what they provide to a family, which is obviously a lot of the time, like money, paying the mortgage, paying the bills, keeping the lights on, uh, keeping the water running. And uh, I know Chris Chris Rock talked about it. He he jokes about how no one ever thanks dad. No one ever thanks dad for, thanks for keeping the light on so I can read this book. He's like, oh, I love all this this clean water. No one ever says that. He's like, thanks for paying the rent, dad. It's never that. It's, it's often like, thanks for dinner, mum. Thanks for this and that. And by no means do I think women get enough credit for being mums. They don't. But I don't think dads are either. And um, I wish we were. And I think we should value the sacrifice they made. I feel like dads should have more parental leave. I feel like it'd be benefit to both women and men. And I fundamentally feel like fathers deserve equal rights to mothers, which they don't have. And I'm tired of hearing talk of fathers not taking equal responsibility. And I'm like, equal responsibility starts with equal rights. And fathers don't have equal rights. So how could you ask a father to be equally responsible when he doesn't even have equal rights? Like both those things need to change at the same time. And fathers don't have equal rights. They don't have equal paternity leave. And they don't have equal access to their children. So there's a lot being left out on the, the parenting discussion, I think. And, yeah. uh, and then yeah. you have the, 
the side of the conversation that evolves when family units break up too. Like what's the oh. effect to, on men and women at that point? Bad, bad. Like, whenever I talk to people about, people always come to me with their talk of power dynamics and you don't understand the power dynamics, George. And I'm like, probably not. But if you think there is just one power dynamic, you should head down to your local family court and, f- and have a look at how powerful those fathers are in keeping their children, which is not very at all. Like the way it works in the UK is that um, you ha- for a father to have equal rights to his child, he has to either be married or have his name on a birth certificate. And that's it. And both of those things can be decided by the mother. The mother can not marry him and not name him on a birth certificate. And therefore he has no rights to that child. But a mother has equal rights in every single outcome. So married, separated, divorced, single, doesn't matter. Full rights to the mother, not the same for the father. And uh, that's just a, a basic inequality of, of actual human rights, like actual rights that men don't have, that women do, based on their gender. And it's not right. It's not right. And especially when we're talking about children, which is probably the most important thing to any parent's life, for them to be deprived of rights that will, that will deprive them of the thing most important to them is a serious issue that no one's talking about. Very few people were talking about it. And uh, the family court system is totally broken. There's a lot of discussion about how private it is or how secret it is and how much oversight there is in family courts. There's certainly a lot to be done. But basically, a lot of fathers are losing their children unfairly. A lot of allegations are being made in family courts that aren't true. Basically, you can totally see how it happens. But if you're facing losing a child as a man or a woman, if you can make an allegation against your partner of, childhood abuse child abusing your children abusing you if you can do that about any evidence which you can then you're going to do it if it's going to get your child i can see why people want to do it all you have to say is he abused me he abused a child and then the conversation's over the child's yours so that system's very if there's a system that can be exploited it will be eventually and it is and uh that's also not even concluding the fact that women or men get legal aid if they make a false alle- if they make an allegation lawyers paid for so a lot of working class families are doing that. And the, different, the, the issue is not in middle class families where a father and a mother can both afford legal representation more or less equally. The issue is in working class families where the, typically the, the mother will make an allegation against the dad uh, and then she'll get legal aid and she'll get custody. So that, that happens a lot, but it's very difficult to know how often because there's so little transparency in family courts. It's like a bit of like a black box, really. And it's... it's quite quite scary yeah one thing you mentioned that i don't want to lose sight of and just to to, to bring up the percentage chance of us getting cancelled here um talking about gender pay gap oh well it's like there is a gap of course there's a gap mm-hmm. but it's like people that work more dangerous jobs get paid more which is men people that work longer hours get paid more which is men people that work more overtime get paid more, which is men. People that work in higher paid fields more get paid more. And that's men as well. Like men are paid more, but are they paid more because they are men? I don't think they are. Like dangerous jobs, longer hours, overtime, traveling to work farther, working in more uh, higher paid fields like engineering, STEM. There's obviously another, there's another conversation to have about why don't women work more dangerous jobs or why don't women work the same amount of hours? A lot of it around childcare and there's some useful conversations around that, but the conversation starts with women are paid less because of the choices they make. 
why they make those choices is a separate conversation, but it's not down to discrimination. Um, and often we talked about it as well, but the big, the big pay gap, the main pay gap is between mothers and fathers, where mothers take more time off work, they leave their career, they don't get pay rises, they don't even get paid. And if they do, get, if they do return to work, it's either not at all or part-time. And people that work part-time get paid less, whereas the, the father will go back to work after two weeks in the UK. The mum will stay off for a year. The father goes back. He gets paid more. He gets more promotions, as he should, because he's working. So the pay gap is a pay gap more between mothers and fathers than it is between women and men. There is a gap between women and men, but that's more down to the reasons I gave about the type of what jobs they work. But it's overall, it's just a very low-resolution debate we're having on the pay gap, where we just see women are paid less because they're women. And that's not true. Like if you look at women and men working the same job for the same hours with the same experience, women are paid 99 cents to the dollar of a man. Uh, but if you look at it, if you look at median women versus median men, it's like 80 cents to the dollar. But I'd prefer mm. to use the controlled pay gap, which is 99 cents to the dollar. Um, so it's just people aren't willing to have that discussion. Doesn't not Everything I've just rambled on for for the last two minutes won't fit into a tweet. So therefore, it's not interesting to 99% of people yeah and uh it's a difficult subject to discuss very complicated cool because and that's exactly why i got you on here um <laughs> yeah. it's a high resolution conversation yeah it's like it's it's the kind of conversations that are obviously so important but is so unappetizing to a very dopamine driven quick sensationalized yeah. society but it shouldn't be like it's the frustrating thing is Pay gap's a great example of this, where the issues that impact men, which is, in this case, unequal parental leave, unequal um, rights to children, impacts women indirectly because it means they get paid less because they have to take on the burden that men aren't getting. If we were to say men and women get equal parental leave, equal rights, that would create a movement where more fathers take time off work and therefore more mothers can return to work and more mothers get paid more and the gap would close. Like... The, the issues are symbiotically linked. They're the same issues, two sides of the equation we're talking about. And yet we only talk about one and you will never close the pay gap unless you give fathers equal time with their children. But people don't want to talk about that. People just want to sort of wave a pitchfork in, <laughs> in the air and, you know, placards and screams, sh- scream crap about patriarchies and toxic this and male privilege that. And my sort of voice gets just a bit too boring, right? Unfortunately, just droning on about the detail and no one wants to hear. Mm-hmm. It's not as interesting as a catchphrase. Yeah. If you're thinking, so one, one of the things that I enjoy thinking about, like what has an outsized return of impact? And if you're thinking about the beliefs at the heart of this discussion that minimize um, the focus we pay to, to men and boys, what would you say those kind of the 80-20 belief is? Like what's this, the, the one belief that has an outsized uh, effect on the conversation what do what do you mean what by what do you mean by belief so there's obviously a set of beliefs that um are creating a either a lack of attention or a kind of a lack of care over the, the discussion that we're having the nuance within it oh. right now um so like what would you say that the kind of the central beliefs there are the ones that have the biggest impact here I feel like it's a, uh, a fundamental misunderstanding of men and boys when we assume that men are not emotionally eloquent or aren't able to communicate their feelings. And often when people say that, I mean they don't communicate their feelings like women 
often men don't talk in the same way as women don't communicate they don't express their pain fear or distress in the same way as women and we seem to think that because they're not expressing it in the same way as women they're not expressing it at all and i don't think that's true like we've done i've worked directly on studies into suicide for example where we've asked men to share their experiences of the, the most vulnerable times in their life, like sharing stories of being abused, being sexually assaulted or molested as children, very vulnerable things to share. And we had no end of contributions, whole paragraphs of texts from all over the world, thousands and thousands and thousands of men sharing their life story in a way that's so emotionally eloquent and heartbreaking that I was just like, these men are talking. They, they, they are talking, they want to talk, and they know how to talk, and they know how to express themselves. And the, and the wisdom they have mm-hmm. is just next level. And I was like, these are not the oafish, stoic men I, get, I hear described. These are sensitive, vulnerable, intelligent men that are do, being described as if they're like cavemen that are totally unaware of their feelings. And I'm like, men do know how to talk. I feel like the bigger issue is that we don't know how to listen to them, or we don't care enough to ask at all. So... I think men are talking as long as you're willing to listen to how they communicate. Um, but some people are just not open to that. Uh, talking is talking, listening. Is yeah. Yesterday. Go on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Actually, Monday um, evening, I had a conversation with uh, <laughs> the terminology here is obviously linked a uh, fireman firefighter um, about mm. his, impact like he basically over the weekend is, is telling me how he'd had um one large road traffic collision to deal with it was very difficult and then mm. a fire that was put out and then he us we got talking about the very difficult times in his uh in his career that he kind of dealt with and we just sat in the gym with the rest of the class going on and we kind of would finish our class and we're chatting there and i was thinking like this is such a an eloquent discussion about this like he's verbalizing this and discussing this in such a mature and articulate way i think you kind of isn't expected Mm. for some Mm. reason but like i so i work with um a lot of like high performers people who are trying to eke out an extra few percentage points Mm. in terms of like what they do with their life and they want to approach that through mindset and Mm. broad terms and the conversations that I have with guys in that um, space are so articulate. They're so um, to the point, they're so engaging emotionally. And it's not, it's definitely that men don't have the, this is from my perspective anyway, it's definitely that men don't have the capacity to do so or the skill set to do so. It's more the the space and maybe the freedom to do so. I mean, you cut out for a few seconds there, but maybe if you just brief. Okay rephrase the last 20 seconds of that yeah yeah so like i was just well i, I was rambling as forever um but i, th- I think that men have that capacity within them they can certainly build mm. up the skill set to to have these kind of conversations mm. but it's more the space and the the option yeah. to do so yeah 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 like just even people 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 don't even like men's spaces anymore like people feel like that's inherently toxic and some sort of hotbed for misogyny when it's like a lot of men just want to meet with other guys a lot of men want to hear what other guys have got to say. Unfortunately, there's something that men can only really understand about other men. And like, as, as, even the most well-intended woman, I don't think will ever have a complete understanding of what it is to be a man. And there's something special about men talking to other men in the men's space without judgment, in, non, in a non-clinical space. Yeah. And the same for women. There's something sort of precious about women's spaces, women's groups. And I, I feel the same way about that. And 
the sad thing is, is people seem to think that men's spaces are kind of grubby. And I, mm. I think one of those spaces is the gym, actually. I feel like that is a bit of a therapy space for a lot of men and women, but mostly yeah. men. And we talk a lot about side-by-side time or shoulder-to-shoulder time. Mm-hmm. By that, I mean there's in, there is a, a movement within the psychological industry that is suggesting that in a therapeutic environment, men benefit less from face-to-face time, which is typical therapy, where you, you go into a clinical space, you sit down, and you talk to who is often a woman. That isn't that, that mm-hmm. effective on men. Men are, men benefit not from face-to-face time, shoulder-to-shoulder time, where they're at the gym lifting weights, they're going for a walk, they're doing sort of a bushcraft stuff, they're, you know, making things, like even just going for a walk. Like That's the sort of stuff I think is more beneficial to men, especially in a group space, a group therapy sessions. And that, I guess that links back to what I said about men do talk. They just talk in a slightly different way to women in general, and that's totally fine. That doesn't mean they're, they're totally inept emotionally because they're not and the conversation between you and your friend who's a firefighter i think would have been a testament to that and um yeah it's also like there is a second stage as well it's like whenever we talk about we ask men to talk but then often we we don't extend that to us discussing what men are talking about and in that sense in in your case it's like a firefighter's life is so stressful the things they go through are are real difficult dangerous there's probably a high suicide rate of in firefighters because of the trauma they experience and mm-hmm. it's not enough for us just to listen to that sort of person we need to actually act upon what's been said and in that case ch- hopefully change the way firefighters are looked after and not just assume that the beginning and end of the problem and the solution is to- him talking it's him talking and then us listening and, and hopefully changing the system to, to help him um so yeah and, yeah yeah Absolutely, man. Yeah, and, and one one thing that I kind of I notice is guys, especially, have been maybe misled by the approach they think they have to have to their mental fitness and mental health. There's kind of two ends of the spectrum mm. there. Like when I start working with someone, they'll come to me in this idea of like, "Oh, this is going to be like this deep therapeutic process," mm. and it's actually like not the case for all guys. I don't think it's, I've tried a bunch of approaches with what I do and, um, and it actually doesn't seem to help most guys that much beyond a certain point. It's almost mm. like you need to verbalize it. And then for, from what I see and like this, I could have a very selective, um, control group here, but it seems like you need to talk about it to kind of frame what to do about yeah, it and then do yeah. something. You nailed, you basically nailed it there. Like, that's something that John Barry, Dr. John Barry talks about. He's the founder of the, the Center for Male Psychology and also the founder of the men and boys section of the BPS. And he talks about how the way men view therapy is very different. Like if a man shares a problem, often he just wants a solution. And more often when women talk about problem, they just want to be heard. They, they don't necessarily want a solution. Uh, they want a, a space to vent and listen to. And both, both those needs are very real and important, but they're not quite the same. And that's why that what causes all these arguments where uh, a woman's talking to her husband or boyfriend or whatever about a problem, about work, and he's just there giving solutions. And she's like, I don't want a solution. I just want you to listen. And I was like, that isn't just a meme. I feel like that's how men and women often think. Like Women like to share their feelings and be heard and validated. But often men just want a solution. So it's not quite as simple as that. And I would say in that sort of space, if someone is telling you about a problem they have, Sometimes you just need to ask, like, are you looking to be listened to or are you looking for a solution? 
and they'll tell you they're like, I oh, know I just want to rant or just want to vent. Or sometimes like, no, I actually want you to suggest something. Mm. And I feel like men and women group slightly differently into those two areas. And men more often want a natural solution. And women just want space to talk. And that, yeah. that's something that John, like I said, John Barry talks a lot mm-hmm. about. He was worth, worth looking into more, actually. He's, he's great. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful, dude. Um, I'm running up on my time limit, which is such a shame. But is there anything that we haven't touched on that you think is important to, to, uh, to touch on now? No, I feel like we've got, we're squeezing loads squeezing plenty um only i mean the only other thing i think is important to, for us to answer your question again about what what change in mindset would have the biggest impact with the smallest amount of effort and that would be reframing uh the issue of male suicide out of men- a mental health issue and into a societal issue so not seeing suicide in men primarily as a mental health crisis and seeing it more as the buildup of personal stresses and structural problems. So we talked about a man being abused, 11% of abuse victims attempt suicide. We talked about family courts is another thing. Uh, uh, Martin Seeger suggested that around 20% of male suicides in the UK are directly linked to family courts and child custody battles. A lot of male suicides are linked to debt. A lot of it's linked to joblessness. A lot of it's linked to relationship breakdown. And these are all issues. They're not mental health issues. A man who's lost his job and is in debt, that isn't a mental health problem. That's a financial problem. Mm. A man who's losing his child isn't experiencing a mental health crisis. He's experiencing the crisis of losing the thing that's most important to him. A man being abused by his wife is not going to solve that by crying about it or talking about it. Uh, And that's why I feel like we need to widen our perspective of male suicide. It is obviously a mental health problem as well but it has a structural cause, a systemic cause, environmental cause, economic causes. There are real real issues feeding into it. And like, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if your firefighter friend has had similar thoughts himself. And I would suggest they aren't. That is a mental health problem. That's a problem of him experiencing highly stressful, traumatizing situations again and again and again for a period of his entire career. And ultimately, most men who are suicidal don't consider themselves okay. having a mental health problem. They consider themselves having real systemic problems like the ones i mentioned so mm-hmm. that slight reframing of male suicide i feel like is a really good gateway into so many things i talk about and it requires very little effort and has a massive impact and hopefully can fundamentally change the way you see the male suicide crisis beautiful man thank you for sharing that. where can people keep updated um and follow your work thank you oh where oh i'm just on yeah Instagram, really. I mean, I'm on Twitter, but Instagram is the main point you want to go to, and it's just at the Tin Men. So T H E T I N M E N, all one word. So yeah, I'm all there. You can get you can to go there Discord. for quick. Yeah, yeah. Go there for very quick. Yeah, go there for easy quick bite sized information. Like you can learn about different issues within two minutes, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and every single day, I try to put a post about a different subject. Today, we are talking about domestic violence. Uh, yesterday it was about uh, violent crime in the cities and the day before that it was Ukraine, uh, Ukraine, what's happening to men in Ukraine and, and the conscription of men and boys, which is again another invasion of human rights. Um, so yeah, the Tin Men on Instagram and uh, come join the conversation. Perfect. Thank you so much, George. Thanks, mate. Massively appreciate your time. No, no problem. Uh, thanks for having me on.